listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian here with another interview. Uh, we have with us today David Pelegi, who is the rector at Christ Church Jerusalem. So we are actually broadcasting live from the Holy City itself, from a church in Jerusalem, a very historic church. Uh, Christ Church is the oldest Protestant church in the Middle East. It was completed in Jerusalem in 1849. It's known as the Jewish Protestant Church, which is a really cool name or a really cool thing to be known for. And uh, we're glad to have David with us today to talk a little bit. David, thank you for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm not invited to too many too many of these affairs, so um, actually, it's a great honor. Well, <laughs> we're glad that you're that you're here talking. Um, I'm just curious how an American like you from from Tampa, right? ends up all the way over here in the Middle East, pastoring a church in Jerusalem. How did that happen? Well, it, it is a bizarre uh, story. Um, and uh, it certainly wasn't uh, something that I planned that I was going to spend 43 years in Jerusalem. But uh, it really just started um, in the late 70s with a... Uh, with a very strong, strong calling um, and a um, s- s- some kind of deep um, knowledge, or you might say confirmation after confirmation, if you want to use that, that uh, Christian cliche, that uh, I needed to go to Israel. And uh, recently, uh, in, in 1979, at the end of that year, I was married, and uh, a few months later, I surprised my wife by telling her, I think the Lord wants us to go to Israel. And she said, what forever for? I said, I don't know, but I think we're supposed to learn something. That always goes over well, that conversation. It, it absolutely does. And, and I remember telling the Lord, you know, we get over there and she doesn't like it. We're, come, we're packing our bags and coming home. So, you know, don't uh, give me a hard time. <laughs> Um, and how long are we going to stay? And I think, I think we're just going to stay a year or two, but we just want to be involved with what the Lord is doing and, um, you know, make our lives count for something. And uh, Brian, it was made very, um, was made easier by the fact that we didn't have any children and weren't making any, making any payments on a boat trailer. Um, so with, no entanglements and no real commitments and not a lot of plans for our life. And we had a, we had a sense that uh, a general direction, you might say, uh, we took off for Israel six, seven months after we were married. And uh, we've been here ever since. So you took off and you had no job lined no up. Job. You had no idea no, what you were going to do. I had no job with no money. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, really, nowhere to go until 24 hours uh, before leaving, and um, this is the kind of thing I tell people: don't try this at home, okay? Um, but the Lord was in it, and uh, we got here. And um, after a while, we we both knew that this was the right thing to do. And uh, people ask, how long are you staying? 
And we say, and we tell folks we're staying you really as long as the Lord, you know, gives us the green light. We may die here, or we, he may tell us your time is finished. You know, you're released to go back to the great Republic, the United States of America, where we have grandchildren. So we wouldn't be suffering uh, if we did that. So. So you show up in Jerusalem and what kind of work do you start doing? How did you find your way around into getting into ministry and doing studies and all these things? Yeah, so we show up in Jerusalem at $350. And I'm uh, sorry to say we probably only have, we still have $350. Yeah. <laughs> the, the net worth didn't go up. It just And uh, 24 hours before we got on the plane, um, somebody called us. I didn't know very well. And she said, this by the way, we're talking about Tampa, Florida. She said, I hear you're going to Israel. She was a Jewish believer, uh, believer in Jesus. And I said, yes. She said, where are you going when you get there? I said, well, I don't really know. That part hasn't been, hasn't been worked out yet. She said, well, I happen to own uh, you, part of a uh, small boutique hotel outside of Jerusalem. And uh, I really admire what you're doing. So I'm going to call them up and tell them that they have to, they have to host you. And uh, so the, um, the manager of the hotel picked us up at the airport. And she said, where do you want to go? And with a lot of spa and nerve, I said, to, to your place. <laughs> uh, and they were very gracious. They hosted us for three weeks, helped us to get an apartment. My wife um, is cellist, and uh, she's uh, professional. And so as soon as we got to, to uh, Jerusalem, uh, she decided, well, I'm going to go audition for the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. And uh, before she went off to inquire about uh, work, the manager of the hotel said, let me give you a little bit of advice. She said, uh, Israelis can be quite pushy, but if you push back, you'll be okay. So she went, actually went to get, went together to the uh, office of the Jerusalem Symphony. She talked to the personnel manager. She said, I'm a cellist. I played in uh, this orchestra and that orchestra in the United States. You have any openings? And the woman said, Well, by chance we do, but by the way, are you Jewish? You know, this is a Jewish country. Well, having been forewarned is to be forearmed. Yes. Or something like that. Something like that. And uh, my wife said, well, you know, Jesus was Jewish. And by the way, we'd never say that now. We would say Jesus is Jewish, but my wife at the time said Jesus was Jewish and I feel like I belong here. <laughs> the woman was quite <laughs> stunned. She said, oh, okay, well, let me go uh, find the principal cellist. Um, and uh, you, two of you can talk. So in strolls principal cellist. And she asked my wife, well, where did you study? She said, Chicago Musical College. And it turned out they had the same teacher. Yes. Really? Carl Fru. Carl Fru. And so there was an audition, and not surprisingly, you know, several weeks after uh, 
landing in Israel uh, in this miraculous way. Uh, my wife, Carol, got a job and she was moved up to sit, uh, you know, to sit in the second chair of the cello section. And uh, in a way, that's how we uh, we survived. Uh, the Sounds first, like you chose first well. Years. Pardon? You chose well. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, uh, yes, one should always marry a cellist, you know. There you go. You have the opportunity. So uh, the, it was miracle after miracle uh, in that, uh, you might say, in that day. We could, someone could almost make a movie about this or could write <clears throat> a popular testimony book. But uh, the downside of it, it, maybe it's not a downside, but uh, after a number of years when we were struggling for money and uh, we had two children and uh, could barely put food on the table or buy medicine when um, it was necessary, you know, the thought kept coming, well, what are we doing here? And uh why aren't we packing our bags and going home? Because obviously this isn't working, you know, but at the same time, I remembered the calling, how strong it was and how many literally hundreds of circumstances, big uh, and small, actually worked out uh, for us to uh, move to, to Israel and to continue living here. And so, my wife and I decided, well, unless we have a, uh, a calling, you might say, or uh, a word from the Lord or some kind of, I use the word sign, that uh, our time here is up, we won't go home. And so that kept us um, through many, you might say, lean, difficult years uh, until about 1990 uh, when I was um, asked to be the director of the Christchurch Study Tour Ministry, which has the name Shorish. And um, it was only after being here for 10 years that I really come, in, come to a place where I um, felt like this is the reason that the Lord called me here. But it took 10 years. You might say it was 10 years in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, my wife was very, she had a great job and she, she had a lot of um, uh, wonderful professional opportunities. Uh, but for me, it was difficult during those 10 years. So many people come to Israel uh, or, come, or end up in the Middle East and uh, they come with stars in their eyes. It's uh, They have a certain romantic notion or romantic view about living in this part of the world, uh, about some ministry that they're going to, um, they're going to have about how their message or their insight or their technique is going to uh, uh, really shake things up, yes, um, here. And um, what we see year after year is uh, folks rolling in, with a calling, and uh, when things get difficult, they roll right out. Mm. And in many ways, Jerusalem is just one big train station. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, people coming, people going. And um, it's not that 
maybe they didn't have a calling or they did have a calling. It's that um, I think living in this part of the world, you know, um, in some ways demands um, like any calling, it demands a certain amount of sacrifice. And, um, you know, when the sacrifice gets greater than the, than the romance, you know, people you know, tend to leave. People ask, why didn't you leave? Well, it wasn't just that we were so religious or so pious. Um, it was in part that we didn't have any money in which to leave. We were, we were actually stuck. And uh, being stuck financially, in a way, was God's provision for us, um, as difficult as it was. So you started doing tours for Shorish. I, yes, I started. Uh, uh, I was had been attending Christ Church for for many years, and uh, our parish started a study tour ministry uh, in the eighties. We were we were appalled at the the level of. Uh, or the quality of tours that many Christians were uh, receiving. And so uh, we wanted to create an alternative. And um, we called it, called the ministry Shoresh, which in Hebrew means a root. And uh, we decided, uh, well, we decided several things. That first and foremost, the ministry uh, or the tours uh, would only be given by or conducted by uh, believing guides, be Jewish believers, Arab believers, um, but the guides all had to be um, committed, you know, to the gospel and committed to following Jesus. That secondly, we are going to emphasize uh, the Jewish context of the gospel, not to um, make folks Jewish or uh, to create Jewish wannabes, but uh, really as a way of helping uh, Christians better understand Jesus, better understand the New, Test New Testament, and to be more intentional about their um, discipleship. Mm. Uh, and third, um, I used to tell um, my guides, at least when I was the director, I said, if you don't um, pray you know, for your groups uh, every morning, Yes, that uh, they will encounter the Lord uh, in this place, uh, in the Holy Land. Then please don't, please don't come to work for us. Right? Mm -hmm. um, on one hand, you might say it was discipleship on the bus. Uh, on the other hand, um, we're committed to um, good scholarship and um, better understanding uh, how so-called Jewish roots or Jewish context or Hebraic backgrounds, even though I don't like that term, uh, can help us to sharpen uh, our focus and our understanding and ultimately our commitment to the Lord. Now, you mentioned early on how people come in with the starry eyes, romanticism, and they roll out, and you're talking about, you know, how you, you're trying to use... You, you, you found that calling in some part with Shorish and helping people grow in their discipleship and all these things. What makes it so, what, what is unique about ministering in Jerusalem? So uh, Jerusalem, right? What is it? You know, what is the character uh, of this city? Um, well, 
First and foremost, um, while it is a city in mostly in Israel, uh, it is also a, you can't, uh, you can't call it an Israeli city. It's something unlike Haifa or it's unlike Beersheba or it's unlike Tel Aviv. It's a planet. Okay. All by its, all by itself. Uh, in fact, most Israelis don't consider uh, Jerusalem to be a part of their country. I suppose just like most Americans might say the same about New York. Um, most of the people here are, um, it has a, a Western facade. Yeah, mm -hmm. you would think it's a European city or, um, yes, a European city or a, a city in Eastern Europe. Um, but if you scratch it underneath, it's very, very Middle Eastern. Um, most of the uh, population, uh, Jewish population, uh, come from Middle Eastern countries. Um, and of course, you have a large number of Palestinian Arabs uh, who live in this city. Quite a few of the folks who live here uh, are Orthodox. Jewish Orthodox or ultra Orthodox. And on one hand, that makes the city very conservative and even safe. I think, for example, last year we were a city of almost 1 million people. We had 13 murders. Really? Yes. Uh, not very many rapes. Sometimes there's terrorist um, uh, attacks. Um, but still, you know, you might say it's a very safe place. And also it's very, very traditional. Um, and it's not, you might, might say, um, people might be stuck in their ethnic group or their, um, uh, you might say their religious bubble. It's a very poor city. All the cities in Israel, it's not very wealthy. And I think also quite in, Quite essentially, it is also a city that um, the inhabitants, the residents, feel like they're on a front line. Right? We're involved in a war. This is the Arab-Israel conflict or the, or the, the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And you don't, feel, you don't feel the same tension, for example, that you feel uh, in another place in Israel. Or even in, yeah, let's leave it like that, other yeah. places in Israel. So there's a lot of pressure. Um, and at the same time, there's a certain, there is a certain dynamism because the, the you know, the, um, the events that surround Israel and Israeli society are oftentimes spinning around you. Um, and, um, the dynamism and the tension from the uh, from the conflict uh, and the kind of the conflict ethnic between ethnic groups and within the city within the Jewish community and the conflict between or misunderstandings between Arabs and Jews um, all of this adds up and makes for a lot of pressure. And people talk about spiritual pressure here. But that can be very subjective. So I think I, I kind of leave that on one side. But there are all, there are many, many factors here 
Um, and uh, on any given morning, when I wake up, I feel like I'm tiptoeing through a minefield. Just have to be very careful, you know, not to um, do something that uh, is going to be uh, offensive or harmful, you might say, in the eyes of uh, the people who, you know, are a part of this community. So it could be Palestinian Arabs, Palestinian Christians, they could be our Muslim neighbors, um, they could be uh, our Jewish friends, it could be, uh, it could be some um, different Jewish groups who consider us, you know, dangerous missionaries and they would call us enemies, um, visiting pilgrims, Anglicans, government officials, um, the police, you know, the army, you know, so on and so forth. So very complicated. And it takes a long time for anyone to, to really start to get to understand the lay of the land. And that's why people who come for two or three years and leave, it's, um, it's disruptive on our community because it's, you know, they've been here a year or two, it only, you know, then do they start figuring out why do people drive the way that they do here? Okay, or why are the post offices always closed on Tuesday afternoon or something? Well, and then as soon as you bring people, start to bring people up to speed, and then they get a become, you know, begin to um, uh, absorb, you know, uh, the um, the issues here and the different cultures and different ethnic groups and different political uh, points of view, then they're gone. So it's the tension that the, the maybe it's, is it the constant exposure to that political tension, that, that inter-ethnic tension that kind of burns people out? Is, is that um, what you're kind of getting at? Yes, but it's, it's also, um, right, there is um, there's that, that, there that tension because we're, again, Jerusalem's on, in the edge of the West Bank. It's where so many, there's no, no other city in Israel that has such a large uh, Palestinian population, right? There, there's an Arab minority in Haifa and there's an Arab minority in Jaffa or Beersheba. But here it's, it's you know, it's huge. Um, and it's not just Jews and Arabs. It's all kinds, it can be all kinds of tensions within um, the uh, uh, Jewish community itself, different ethnic tensions uh, as um, we're, these things are occurring, uh, occurring now as we speak. You have um, politicians, both Arab and Jewish politicians that um, uh, tend to whip these um, uh, make these intentions worse by uh, pouring fuel on the fire. You have that a certain political instability in the last number of years because of a political deadlock within the country. You have this um, uh, Israeli population that has been traumatized by the Holocaust and traumatized by their 
the Jewish experience in the Arab world, the Arab countries. And then, of course, that trauma has been um, heightened by a hundred years of conflict uh, with Palestinian Arabs and, and neighboring Arab countries. And so um, you, someone can burn a few Israeli flags in, you know, Beijing, and, uh, you know, the whole nation can, uh, uh, you know, virtually, you know, virtually be on edge. Um, and uh, there are many things that are happening that are not threats to Israel or the Jewish people. But at the same time, if you're traumatized, it's hard to separate out what is real, right? And yeah. what is um, uh, really not, at the end of the day, very serious. You have a tension with Iran. You have the threat of war uh, with Hezbollah and Lebanon, Hezbollah and Syria, Iranian troops in Syria. So, um, the, uh, another Palestinian uprising. And of course the Palestinians themselves have, right? They have their trauma. And uh, again, all of this seems to have more of a, uh, comes to something of an apex more in Jerusalem than in other places in the country. Where, where do you see your role in it as a rector of Christ Church? Christ Church is it, where do you fit in the midst of all these swirling things. Okay, well, I, uh, my, our role, um, you know, reading the epistles, <laughs> uh, I sometimes think I'm reliving Romans 14 or Romans 15, right? Huh. Um, we have um, a phen phenomenal opportunities, you know, for the first time uh, in 1800 years uh, to form communities with Jewish believers in Jesus and to try to live out, um, try to, to live out community, right? In the way that, uh, for example, it is uh, outlined for us in the book of Ephesians, hmm. right? To be one new man uh, or to be a holy temple, right? Being built up together, being a place where uh, the Lord can live. And it's not about a bunch of individuals, really. Um, here in the Middle East, um, we, or most of us, or, or, or most local people, yes, they, um, they don't get their identity from being, you might say, from being an individual. I think, therefore, I am. I, they, that the identity for most Jews and most Arabs comes from the religious or the ethnic group to which they belong, huh. right? So uh, community is, um, is here at the center. And so I don't see our role so much as to get a whole bunch of individuals to believe in Jesus and, you know, to be, you know, to go out and the Bible and be, uh, and be witnesses. Our goal is to um, be a witness as a community, to be a witness as a people. And I think it's very biblical, not just, it's not just culturally appropriate, um, right? From the very beginning, God has 
always looking for a people in which he could and he could indwell right? so or to fellowship with Adam and Eve, uh, Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel, the church, right? And God always wants to come down and dwell, dwell with a people or to create a people that is our, the Anglican liturgy says in one place, to create a people that he can, he can call his own. So I think creating a witnessing, worshiping, working community, right, along New Testament lines, which takes people from dif different ethnic groups, different backgrounds, different political views, and at the same time, not turning everyone into a McDonald's milkshake, mm. homogenizing people, right, allowing folks to keep an ethnic identity or, or a political identity, yet at the same time, right, coming into a place of unity and uh, hopefully loving each other uh, in a practical, concrete way. Um, this community, which is a hybrid community, which is small, it's our job to, and again, it's a very modest, um, it's a very modest, modest suggestion. Uh, it's our job to uh, be an alternative to a lot of the, the tension and misunderstanding, the racism uh, and hatred, you know, that exists in this part of the world. Okay. So, so that is, it's a very insightful thing because I, I think about how, you know, you want to witness, you don't, you don't want to be ashamed of the gospel, but it's a different ball game here where you probably can't really go down and just start, you, know, you can't just start preaching you know, everywhere. Especially and, if you come from the outside, yeah. you're just, who you want, Muslims, Jews, you know, whoever, you're just an outside, you know, you're not quote unquote outside missionary. You have no business here. Right. You have no business, you know, telling us, you know, what to believe or telling us we're wrong. After all, you know, Jews, we Jews will have been around 3000 years and yeah. the Muslims will say we've been around seven, yeah, 1300 years. And, you know, who are you? And by the way, we know what Christianity is all about. And then of course we have to uh, bow our heads in shame and hear about the crusades or, you know, the religious wars in Europe, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That there's, there's no legitimacy to that kind of thing here or very little. Where you can, where you can have a voice is when you become an established community mm -hmm. and people may not like you or may not agree with you, but you know, they say, okay, you're a community. You're not necessarily outsiders. You're, you're indigenous. You're part of us, right? You're, you know, in the case of Jewish believers, you're serving in the, you're, you're, you're doing your national service, you know, you're contributing to the country. Uh, in the case of Palestinians, it might be a different way of expressing uh, something, something similar, right? But you're also, you have another higher form of loyalty. That's a loyalty to, to those who, um, uh, to those who are in Christ or who are in community with you, huh. right? And um, 
that community is if, if it worships uh, and it works together, it becomes a witnessing community. And I'm not <laughs> suggesting that, you know, this is like a Trappist monastery where you don't ever talk about your faith or share your faith, but you do it in a very culturally uh, sensitive way. And, uh, you know, you let people ask and uh, people and folks here are uh, quite spiritually curious. Unlike the United States, it is no, and this is what I like about Israel. I mean, there is a lot uh, that uh, is actually very, uh, you might say, endearing to me. And uh, it's, you know, one of the many reasons that we stay here, not because I'm, we're just called here, but just because I like the, the culture. Uh, yeah. It's very... Um, having grown up as an Italian American, this feels oftentimes very much, uh, very much like home. Well, <laughs> yeah, you can talk about God. Yeah. You can talk about the Bible. Yeah. You can talk about spiritual things. Uh, the politicians do it. The newspapers do it. Nobody will think you're weird. Nobody will think, oh, well, why are you, you know, getting religious on me? We don't, we, you know, we don't talk about religion in public, we don't talk about religion at work. We, well, we in, in Israel, you talk about history and religion, you know, every day. You know, it's in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Even if you're an atheist, right? You, they, these are things you're still, um, you know, as a whole, the culture is quite comfortable with. Um, so yeah, people will ask about your faith, et cetera, et cetera. I guess it takes a long time to establish self as a, as a community. You know, I think about how long your church has been here, and, and that takes the long view. You really have to have a long view in you, mind. You have to, have a, to be in the Middle East, you have to have a long, long, long view. And anyone who comes here and has got some kind of shortcut magic solution, or is what the Americans call the silver bullet, you know, these people end up doing a lot of damage. Hmm. Uh, and it's just... Uh, it, it's, a, it's a certain amount of arrogance, you know. Um, yeah, you have to be patient. And remember the parable of Jesus, that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, or it's like yeast, and it, and it grows slowly, okay? Uh, sometimes it grows faster and sometimes uh, less so, but um, uh, you can't really be in a hurry. There's an old, I used to think it was a, Be a better one saying, apparently it came from St. Jerome, but it's very applicable to the Middle East. Okay. In fact, I want to make some t-shirts with his slogan. Haste is of the devil. Hmm. Yeah. H haste is of the devil. So um, you just, yeah, you have to be prepared to think in terms of 100, 200, 300 years. How can we repair our witness, right, in a place where we're so misunderstood, so mischaracterized, uh, slandered, you might say, um, where our witness has been uh, very poor, <clears throat> right? Uh, well, it's not gonna happen overnight. So, you know, that's that's one of the challenges that we face. How did you end up, I want to just 
quickly cover that part of your story. How did you end up going from, you know, directing Shorish, leading tours, training people, well, to becoming a director? You, you want the, the you want this you want the serious the serious answer. Seri- the serious answer is like this. Um, although I really don't want this to get around too much. Okay, so if you can kind of keep up, keep it under wraps, I'd be really grateful. You want me to cut? I can cut. Uh, no, no. I, I want I want all your listeners to take an oath of oh, okay. secrecy right okay. here and now. Please okay. raise your right hand. Yeah, there we go. Uh, and um, swear on your phone. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, open the Bible uh, on your phone. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah. Not when you're driving. Not when you're driving. You're driving. Yeah. No. Yeah, this, this, the, the joke is, and there's some truth to it. You hang around Jerusalem long enough, you can be promoted to anything. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping before I die, they'll make me a cardinal or something in the yeah. Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> you know, so I can get a limo <laughs> with a red, a little red kippa. No, after um, for many years, um, I, I felt uh, that you know, after. Um, I was planning on leaving Shorish, uh, directing the ministry for 19 years and doing some guiding uh, as well. I thought, well, what is the Lord calling me to? And uh, I had a good friend who's no longer with us, Dwight Pryor from uh, Dayton, Ohio, who helped me to discern, you know, a calling, you know, to ordination, something... uh, that had been rumbling around inside of me for many years. And um, Bishop Neil Labar um, arranged my ordination through the Church of Uganda. I'd been training um, their ministers or ordinance for many years on uh, study tours uh, here in Jerusalem and throughout the Holy Land. So I was eventually ordained um, by Henry Arambi, Archbishop Arambi, and um, I had every intention of leaving uh, Christchurch or, or looking for, you know, for the um, the place where the Lord wanted me to serve. And unexpectedly, very unexpectedly, a vacancy came up. Uh, a search committee was formed. They um, advertised all over the world and applications poured in. And then finally someone asked me, why um, haven't you applied? And I said, well, it's above my pay grade and I don't have any experience, right? Having just been recently ordained two years before. And um, one of the key members of the search committee said, we'll decide that. You know, you just go ahead. You, you, we want you to apply. So you were ordained. Were you working as a curate in the? Uh, barely. Barely. <laughs> it's, it, this is a, as I told you at the beginning of this. The, Does the Anglican uh, Church the, know that you're a rector? Do they know that this is happening right now? <laughs> Do they know this is happening? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I suppose they yeah. do. <laughs> it's it's a uh, somewhere. But in the end. Uh, despite my many disadvantages and many weaknesses, uh, a search committee decided that I wasn't going anywhere mm-hmm. and that I knew the community. The community knew me. Uh, our community was tired of um, having a vicar for, t- for three or four years and then leave, having another vicar come for mm-hmm. three or four years and leave. 
uh, it was creating a lot of instability. So again, despite my lack of experience, they knew I wasn't going anywhere. And uh, it was for that reason, I think largely I got, uh, I got the, the job. I had a family here. Um, we were well known. We were quite integrated into uh, to Jerusalem, um, or somewhat integrated into Jerusalem. Our children were more integrated than their parents. Um, and um, we had good relations with Jewish believers and, and with Palestinians and, um, and, and more. And so I have been uh, the rector here for 15 years. Well, it looks like they were right. You did stick. You did stick around, and you made good on that. I did stick around, like I told you at the beginning. I still can't afford to leave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, still have three hundred fifty dollars. There you go. You know, you mentioned uh, you talked about time before and, and being patient and sticking out. You can't come here with starry eyes. You got to have a long view in mind. I think you talked about haste too, and, and this kind of ties into something you spoke about a couple nights ago to our group. Right about the Sabbath or Shabbat okay. and uh, especially how the Hebrew understanding of what that really meant, how that was celebrated sheds light mm-hmm. on how we think about time. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the meaning of Sabbath? Okay. Um, when I, I did speak to your group. Uh, I, I think I recall it was several nights ago. Yeah. And um, I think what I wanted to emphasize was to separate um, the uh, Sabbath dinner with the candles and the bread and the wine. Very, very beautiful um, ceremony from actually the Sabbath itself. Um, because as I mentioned to you, many people think if you have the wine and the bread and you light the candles, then you somehow observe the Sabbath. And I think the, the, my other goal was also to rescue the Sabbath um, or the understanding of the Sabbath, meaning of the Sabbath, from the um, perhaps typical Protestant view that says, well, that's all from the Mosaic Covenant. And as we know, uh, we've been, quote unquote, freed from the law. It's not... Uh, obligatory on us. And of course, there's no New Testament, uh, certainly not a a direct New Testament injunction that we should uh, honor the Sabbath. Um, And what I pointed out, and if I didn't point it out, I, I want to do so now, that actually the Sabbath was given before the Torah was given on Sinai. It's a part of the creation. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't usually go along with those people who say we're free from the law, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, even if you want to advance that argument, um, so oh, we're talking about something yeah. that is a part of the of the pattern, right? For of creation, right? This is this is God's gift to us as yeah. a um, as a, a way to promote, right? Help human. Uh, human flourishing. And so a lot of times, if we do talk about the Sabbath, we talk about the Sabbath as a day uh, of worship. So we have um, 
uh, a lot of theological uh, dissension, right, in the uh, the Christian world, um, especially for those who are strong advocates of Saturday worship, uh, and for those folks worshiping on a Sunday uh, is somehow pagan and wrong and unbiblical. And um, of course, there's nowhere in the scripture that says that we have to or must worship uh, on the Saturday, even though that became a uh, a day that Jews uh, traditionally started going to uh, started going <clears throat> to synagogue. And then finally, there's the whole idea of rest. Okay, the Sabbath is just about rest, and for, there's no question that we live in a kind of an overheated society, and people have a huge amount of pressure on. Uh, on them, and uh, people could certainly use uh, a, use rest, etc. Right. So all of those things were a little bit of a preamble to get to a an understanding for us as Christians. Yes, what is the value of some kind of Sabbath? And I'm not suggesting uh, that we have to be so strict about the amount of time or the day on which. Uh, we observe uh, uh, some some form of Sabbath. Many people work on a Saturday, <clears throat> and so you know, uh, stopping um, and uh, observing a Sabbath may not work for them. So there's an old Jewish teaching. I think it goes back um, probably three or four hundred years from the Hasidic revival. It comes out of Poland. Uh, in which the um, uh, Jewish exegetes of the day uh, were reading um, Exodus 25, 8. It said, build me a sanctuary so that I might dwell within you. Uh, think of Hebrews, Betocham. And they began to think to themselves, well, here's a phenomenally beautiful promise of God. You know, how can we actualize this? How can we make this a reality? Uh, because we really can't build God a sanctuary. Um, the only sanctuary that's permissible would be on the Temple Mount. And of course, the Muslims uh, control that. And if we were to go and build a temple, uh, whether it's 400 years ago or now, it's going to create, uh, start World War Three and World War Four. Um, all in the, all on the same day. So that's not possible, right? It's not possible. So, um, and then I think their minds started working biblically and started thinking theologically. And, uh, of course, the Temple Mount is, the Bible calls it holy. Um, but then they started to think, well, the Temple, the, the the Temple Mount is holy, but what's holier than the Temple Mount? And um, of course, then it occurred to them, well, the first thing that God calls holy is time. Yes, the first thing that God sanctifies is time. So in a way, time is more important than place. And so if we can't build God a tabernacle, uh, in one particular place, 
we should be able to build him a tabernacle or a temple in time. And what is, what is the nature of a temple? Nature of a temple is where heaven meets earth, right? Let's build God a place in our week, right? Let's build where heaven meets earth, where you might say you have a taste of eternity. And that becomes for Jewish people, the Sabbath, right? More than rest, more than just keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. And by the way, I've met thousands of uh, hundreds and hundreds of Sabbath keeping Jews in my 43 years here. I think I've only met one who confessed that uh, he was miserable on the Sabbath. The, uh, almost everybody else uh, can't wait, right, uh, for the Sabbath to begin. Uh, and so it's not something legalistic or some heavy burden which uh, Jews can't uh, somehow uh, endure, but uh, it's something that's, uh, right, it's something quite joyful. And uh, almost everyone I know and looks forward to it with, uh, you know, with anticipation. So how do you create, how do you build God a temple in time? Well, you stop doing those things that are profane, meaning, right, common and ordinary. So you, you don't, as the, as the scripture says, you don't work on the Sabbath. By profane, you don't mean like sinful. You mean I like, don't, No, I don't mean like curse words. I mean common, ordinary, right? Um, things that uh, profanity would be... Um, you know, the stuff you, you kind of get up every morning at eight o'clock and you go to work and you you do what uh, is, um, you might say, routine. OK, um, so you, you put those things aside, put aside work, you put aside shopping, you put aside, you know, any kind of business or financial concerns or uh, using using money. You don't make household repairs. Uh, you don't make really phone calls to, to relatives, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You're not even allowed to talk about money. And technically, you're not even allowed to worry, right, uh, about finances uh, on a uh, on a Sabbath. In fact, when you walk to and from synagogue, you cannot carry money with you. Um, really? Nope. Absolutely. You cannot. So um, you don't, um, of course, watch TV. You don't surf the, the internet. All right. All those things are put aside uh, for 24 hours. And what do you do instead? Well, you have your house clean. Uh, you're going to eat, you know, three really good meals over a 24 hour period. You're going to use your best tablecloth and put on your, your drink your best wine. You're going to, um, um, go to the synagogue. You're going to come home. You're going to eat a Sabbath meal. You're going to, uh, then sing around the table. You're going to talk about the lectionary portion for the that will uh, be read on Saturday morning. 
Um, you will read the holy books. You can take your children for a walk. Uh, you can go out and play with your kids. You can, um, et cetera, et cetera. The Sabbath has to be joyful. And of course, it's always a little shocking when I tell Christians that um, in the Jewish understanding, you really want, uh, uh, traditionally speaking, you'd like, the, the, sorry, the best day to be romantic, you know, with one's wife would be, you know, on the Sabbath. So that um, proof text comes from Isaiah 58. All my Sabbaths will be called a delight. Um, so which is one of the reasons you have wine on a Sabbath table. And so again, in a 24 hour period, it's <coughs> not so much that, that you've rested. Of course, there's rest involved. It's that you've made a place to encounter the Lord and the Lord isn't pushed out, you know, by everyday busyness. And that I think is the lesson of the Sabbath for Christians. Um, I don't think we have to do it exactly like the Jewish people. We don't have to um, copy some of their traditions, but we have a lot to learn from them. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so I, I'm, uh, I'm all for us, you know, understanding, right? The, the holiness of time. All right. We, we think of, of wasting time or saying, or, you know, redeeming time or, um, or making the best use of time, uh, et cetera. But really the scriptural, uh, overall, uh, the scriptural, I think, approach to time is that time, like, uh, uh, time has to be sanctified. Yeah. Time has to be saying God, God has declared certain times to be holy. Um, God has declared people to be holy. He's declared objects to be holy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's only one part of holiness. The, the, uh, our response to things that are associated or connected with God is that God gives the community the privilege and the obligation to be involved in the process of sanctification. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Well, God's already told us the Sabbath is holy, but Exodus tells us that we should be involved in the process of sanctification. You know? That's a really good point. Uh, you just as you're talking about, don't, uh, you know, don't even do work stuff. Don't figure out your bank stuff. Don't worry about your finances on the Sabbath. That's really fascinating to me because mm. oftentimes you think about a day off is when people get done the other things they couldn't do because of their work. <laughs> That's right. So they think, oh, great, I have a, I have a day to catch up with my bills, my whatever, all this exactly. stuff. And it becomes another work day. Exactly. And it's all because you think once you get that out of the way, then you can rest someday over there, over a rainbow somewhere exactly. in the distant future. Exactly. And the fact that God sanctifies time is forcing the issue of saying, no, you're actually going to, you know, that that magical day of where you'll just get this day to not worry about anything <clears throat> is never going to happen. So you're going to actually have to set aside this Absolutely. time. Absolutely, it's yeah. It's something you set aside. You 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 do now and on a regular basis, right? It's one day out of seven, and uh, and uh, according to the Hebrew calendar, um, it is which there were about, I think three hundred thirty days in the year because it's a lunar calendar. 
Um, there's 70 days uh, of, of Sabbaths, right? There's 70 days uh, of, um, of uh, holidays, which you don't work, and uh, uh, 70 Saturdays. Not 70 Saturdays, but taken together with the Saturdays and, and the holy days that you don't work, it ends up being 70. And it all occurs within a seven-month period. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the number seven is is uh, yeah. certainly quite uh, symbolic uh, in all of this. Well, something I noticed too, just the brief time I've been here in Jerusalem is, you know, on on, on the Sabbath, on Saturday, everything's closed. Mm-hmm. You know, things just slow down. And my wife made this observation where it's like, you can have a day off for yourself, but if everybody else isn't having a day off, it doesn't quite do it. So to actually have, like you mentioned, a community gets the privilege together to keep the Sabbath holy. You kind of have to have everybody on the same metronome, on the same kind of rhythm. You don't have to, but it certainly helps. Yeah, yeah. It really helps. Uh, and of course, in a traditional American society, that could have been done on a Sunday. Yeah. But of course, now Sunday is... Well, Sunday has become profane. Sunday has become common. It's not special anymore. There's not so much sanctity left to it, at least within general culture. And so people are working on Sundays and people are going to shopping on Sundays and people are going to restaurants on Sundays, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not being critical of that. I'm just making, right, I'm just making the observation. Virtually, at least in secular American society, um, there's very few days that are kind of holy or special or sacred. And even those days have become quite profane. Maybe uh, Memorial Day maintains a, a certain, um, you might say, holiness. Holiness yeah. being, again, being something that's not ordinary or common. But if you look at our holidays or what's important to us, Super Bowl Sunday, um Fourth of July, um, I don't know, Labor Day, um, <clears throat> you know, secular, secularized Christmas, right? You know the the right the holiness is gone, yeah. uh, and profanity rules. So um, you can shop, you know, at three in the morning, or you can have Amazon, you know, deliver. Order Amazon, you know, any day, any any day of the week, any end of the day, et cetera, et cetera. And I, but I think the the medicine might be that you have a Christian community that's quite intentional, you know, right? in the best way that they can, right, to to sanctify time. Um, and it isn't always meaning, as it may not always mean, mean uh, be keeping a Sabbath, but to keep, but I would recommend that um, we be intentional about keeping a Christian calendar, huh. right? That Christian holy days, not just Easter and Christmas, uh, but um, the, uh, the Sunday that uh, celebrates the Transfiguration or the Feast of the Annunciation, or, you know, maybe a saint's day that honors um, P- 
Peter and Paul, whatever that may be. Um, Ascension Day, Pentecost, right? These things become important. We develop uh, certain traditions around them. And um, even if we're somewhat out of step with larger, even secular society, we live by a different calendar in which, um, uh, again, time, or at least uh, can and should be sanctified. And along with the Christian calendar, I think you sh we should make sh sure that we ob not observe, but at least mark uh, and notice um, the major Jewish festivals of uh, Tabernacles, Pentecost, and Passover. You, you had a really provocative statement uh, a couple nights ago when you said that how we arrange our calendars, or how we order our what we order our calendars around, shows our, in some instances, our idols, or at least the things that we no, prioritize. No, no, it gives us an identity. It gives us an identity. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So we're taking our identity, right, just from right from how we measure time and what we consider right uh, throughout the year to be important. Yeah. Right. So it's a very, very uh, important way of solidifying and strengthening or just it can be in destroying an identity. Right. Yeah. If you were raised in a culture or come from a family that, you know, took Christmas seriously, and I'm not speaking just commercially or took um, other Christian holidays um, uh, seriously. And then, you know, that gets either watered down or diluted or secularized. Okay, of course, then it's going to eat away at, at our, our, they're gonna eat away at our identity. And by the way, it's by sanctifying time, um, it's part of what it means to, uh, to be holy, right? Because holiness involves not only goodness, but holiness involves separation. So one of the ways that I separate myself from society uh, or from the general culture, right? And the way I communicate to my family and my, you know, my faith community is, okay, you know, January 1st becomes important, not because it's New Year's, but because it's a Christian feast day in which Jesus, <clears throat> which we celebrate the circumcision and the naming of Jesus, right? Or February the 3rd, Jesus being presented in the temple or the death of John the Baptist. Um, or we might in our community take seriously, you know, um, the life of Richard Wormbrand and honor him on the day that, you know, that, uh, that he died, for example. Um, or honor those, you know, who uh, were martyrs and saints. So uh, All Saints Day becomes really important, hmm. right? Instead of, you know, focusing on Halloween, um, <laughs> right? So people get, oh, it's demonic, it's not demonic. Look, leave that aside for one moment. What's important is November 1st, <clears throat> right? People have gone before us, need to be honored and they need to be held up in our community as examples. This, by the way, is the key to, to uh, the Jewish 
uh, Jewish longevity, you might say, or, or uh, uh, the survival of the Jewish people as Jews. You know, there's a certain, there's a um, saying amongst Jews that Jews keep the Sabbath, but the Sabbath keeps the Jewish people, mm. preserves them, <clears throat> separates them, right? Not, not in the sense that you totally withdraw from society, right? But in, this, uh, but in the sense that you're two or three steps away from society. You're still involved, yet you still keep a very strong alternative identity. And it has to be done by sanctifying time. Uh, of course, we as people need to understand that uh, we need to sanctify ourselves uh, and live holy lives. Um, but, you know, the sanctity of time uh, is equally, equally important. And in the Protestant Revolution, or the Anabaptist Revolution, uh, along with the Charismatic and Pentecostal movements, the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater. Hmm. When you mentioned time and identity, I, I thought about how if you looked at how someone spent their money, you would see that that would give you an, a, a, at least an insight into what they what, what forms their identity, how they spend their money, well, that's, well, how much more their time. No, right? that would, that's certainly another, <clears throat> that's, uh, you know, another aspect to, to identity as well. And a lot of times we, <clears throat> we, we understand that, or we, we may g get the, the piece about money, but, um, time, um, holidays, seasons. I don't think we sometimes, uh, <clears throat> oftentimes, realize uh, how important these are and how um, beneficial they can be. As long as uh, our calendar or the holidays or the tradition serves us and we don't start serving it. Right. I think you always, always have to be careful. Yeah, that. that's always the tension you're okay. running into. I do wonder uh, whether Catholics would rather people do Halloween or Reformation Day. I don't know. Oh, well, so, no, no. Some people, listen, if, if Reformation Day, I have some doubts about the Reformation, but um, I think it may have been two steps forward, but one step back. But you if, know what? If, if, the, if, the correct if, amount is called Anglicanism. Oh, yes, that's, maybe. That's, <laughs> maybe. No, but if, refer, if the Reformation Day is important, and, those, and, and, and I don't, and to demean the Reformation, it was certainly necessary. It was a it was a necessary corrective. Unfortunately, it just led to thirty thousand Protestant denominations. <laughs> but that should be honored, and that should be held up. And there should be something special or different about the day. Uh, it certainly shouldn't be boring, yeah. or it shouldn't be a, a drudgery. Uh, virtually none of these things uh, uh, should be a drudgery. Um, and, uh, you know, many Christians who, uh, especially from uh, maybe a Pentecostal or an Anabaptist tradition, who they don't have songs or they don't have traditions or they don't have stories. And they, a lot of times they look at Judaism and they think, oh, gosh, how warm and attractive this is. Uh, and, of course, you have a certain pull towards um, Yiddishkeit, you know, this kind of. Uh, this kind of Jewish culture. Mm. And I always tell folks, you know, we have a lot to learn from the Jewish people. Um, we need to respect them. Uh, we need to honor them because, you know, 
their their root, you might say, or they 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 gave us passed down uh, the faith of the Messiah to us. But all those things that you're looking for, you know, it has been and still is available in a Christian context. It's funny that you say that because I remember seeing this video on YouTube where it was a very, very, very charismatic Pentecostal church and they were anointing one of their leaders a king and they put him up on a chair and took this Jewish scroll and they wrapped him around with this massive Jewish scroll. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a... <laughs> first of all, first of all, that's insulting. It's, 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 it's very horrible. It's, no, it, it's, it's horrible. It, it's uh, offensive to Jewish people. It's um, it, it was gimmicky, uh, um, and uh, you know it's just the kind of stuff we you know we shouldn't do. We shouldn't um, misappropriate Jewish religious practices, uh, cheapen them, you know, misinterpret them, and then use them if the, as if, you know, this is going to be some kind of, you know, magic or, or you yeah. know, something kind of mystical. You know, Jews get very offended by that, and I, I can uh, understand that. Now, a Christian church may want to have a Torah scroll or something, but uh, as a way of, you know, uh, remembering the way God's word was transmitted to us, but... Uh, a lot of this stuff becomes hocus pocus, right? If you really, really want to dig deep into our Jewish roots, let's dispense with all the uh, with the silliness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which uh, and now, but causes a lot of um, uh, difficulties in congregations and difficulties for pastors because you all of a sudden someone wants to blow the shofar and. Somebody, you know, says we're, we're going to stop eating pork. And uh, I mean, if you want, if you want to stop eating pork, stop eating pork. But don't impose that, you know, yeah. you don't impose that on uh, on other people. Well, that goes back to what you were saying, that the, the always the tension between you, you want the Sabbath, you want the church calendar to serve you. You don't want to serve it. You don't want it to be this imposing Burden, binding people, all these types of things. Right. You know, it, it, right. All of these things, you know, they're not an end to the end in themselves. Right. Even uh, holiness is not an end in itself. You know, there's some people throughout church history, you know, the goal is holiness, holiness. Well, that's good. And as long as you understand what holiness eventually leads to, it should lead to intimacy with God. Yeah. Uh, and that intimacy should lead to to transformation and and being conformed into the image of uh, into the image of Christ, and not you know a platform to beat other people because you know their skirts might be too short, or you know you know they they watch movies, uh, for example, right? So, you know there has to be uh, a deeper, more mature understanding uh, of these kinds of things. And um, maybe in the discussion of the Sabbath, for those who really aren't convinced, you know, that the Sabbath uh, might be or, or having some kind of Sabbath. And, and I advocate, if you can't do 24 hours, do 12. Huh. Um, do 12 hours with your, and, and make sure it's done with the family. Uh, even if your kids are older, um, 
try to make sure that, you know, once a week you eat a meal with them. Or if your kids or children have gone and out of the house, then maybe you can share it with uh, others in, in your faith community or in your church or your prayer group. Um, but if you can't, uh, I should know but, but in an and if you can't do it on the Friday night or Saturday, do it on a Thursday or do it, uh, certainly do it on a Tuesday and turn your phone off and let people know that you, you know, for 12 hours or 24 hours, you know, you're not taking calls or answering emails unless it's an emergency. And, you know, just like it was 40 years ago, you know, people can live without a cell phone. I mean, it might be hard for uh, folks in our generation to uh, conceptualize such a, a radical thought. But uh, you can live without being in, you know, digital contact with someone for, for 24 hours. 12 hours uh, might be the place to start. Start small, have a long view in mind. <clears throat> That's yeah. right. Remember, haste is of the devil. You don't want to do things too quickly. There you go. Or <laughs> too radically. David, thank you so much. You're for, welcome uh, so much. For chatting and sharing your thoughts. You're Appreciate welcome. it a lot. Yeah. And uh, we'll put uh, a link to the church website, a link to Shorsh in our show notes if people want to learn more about the work yeah. that you're doing. And, uh, right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. We're very grateful All right, thank uh, you for the time you've given us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Glad to do it. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, we'll have another episode up next week. But leave a comment. Uh, leave a, a review. Let people know about this podcast. Share with your friends. We'd greatly appreciate that. We'll catch you guys next time.